fix my car When I buy gas, don't get me very far My baby needs some milk to drink And mama wants her wine I get a check each week But I don't know what's mine I'm losing track I don't know what to do I got the budgeting blues Welcome to Sensible Chat, the podcast committed to helping you learn positive money mindsets, destroy debt, reduce financial stress, and break the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. Our guest professor today is Brian Ursu, author of Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. He'll discuss how to plan for the destination while enjoying the journey and why math always wins. But first, let's get to our budgeting guru. Here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. And thank you for joining me for another episode of Sensible Chat. You know, we live in a society that is money-driven. You go to school to get an education, and a big piece of why you get an education is so you can be productive in the workforce and make money. Money factors into every part of our lives, where we live, how we spend our time, the things we have that make our lives easier or more enjoyable, the things we have to go without when times are tough. All this revolves around money, and yet very little focus is placed on financial education. We spend all this time learning how to make money, but no time learning what to do with it. Have you noticed that people are much more hung up on levels of income without ever thinking twice about net worth? We're so much more interested in how much money a person makes rather than how much they have. The thinking that in order to get ahead in life, you have to make more money is a complete fallacy. If it were true, lottery winners wouldn't go broke. Multimillionaires would never declare bankruptcy. And yet, so many of us have believed it for so long, we often feel powerless over money. If this is your belief, I challenge you to consider a different mindset. A mindset that says no matter what your income is today, you have the power to create a more financially stable tomorrow. You may not control your income today, but you absolutely control your expenses. You control how much you save. You control how you use your money in every way, and you can change your financial picture if you don't like what it looks like today. Now, if you're my age, I'm in my 40s, you could easily say, I wish I'd known, fill in the blank, and use that as a cop-out. I did it. It's too late. That was another favorite. But I was in my 40s when I got serious about paying off debt, and now I'm debt-free. So I know it's possible. It's possible at any age. While we're alive, there's always more time. And that time is going to pass anyway, so we might as well use it to create better lives for ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. I wish I'd started earlier. The more I learn about the relationship between time and money, the more it blows my mind. Do I wish I could go back? Heck yeah! but I can't. And that's okay. I'm making way better decisions with my money now, and I have goals I know I can achieve. How exciting is that? I didn't make these goals because somebody told me I had to, or because I think it's the right thing to do. I did it because there are certain things I want, and achieving my goal means getting what I want. This can all seem clinical at times, words like goal and budget, but they're just tools to help you get what you want. Whatever's important in your life. So while I can't go back, what I can do is share what I've learned and hope that it inspires you to begin the financial journey you dream of. As I've said, this is possible at any age. 
For those of us who are middle-aged, we're often looking at the task of digging out of the financial missteps we've taken in life. And that's going to take a bit more work. But can it be done? Definitely. For those just coming out of school or still living at home anticipating their first paycheck, the task is much different. It's much easier and a lot more exciting, depending on how you do it. If you're a teenager looking for your first job or a college student getting ready to graduate and go out on your own for the first time, you can start planning now and avoid the pitfalls so many of us have fallen into before turning it around. In other words, you can accomplish your goals and start living your dreams way earlier than we did. But no matter where you are, especially given the world we've come to live in during the past several months, you've probably asked the question, now what? when it comes to money. So I found a guy that might have some answers to that question because he wrote the book on it. Hello class and welcome back to Sensible University. We're now in session. Today's guest professor is Brian Ursu, author of Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. Brian is a certified financial planner, registered investment advisor, president of Intentional Wealth Advisors, and a Dave Ramsey SmartVestor Pro. Brian, thanks so much for being our guest professor today. Bobby, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, I had so much fun reading your book. You inject a lot of humor into it and, of course, a lot of great information that we want to jump right into. So in the book, one of the things that I found right up front that made me laugh was that you shared how at the end of a meal at a restaurant with your kids, you always ask, who wants a ride home? And of course, it's meant as a joke, but also a reminder not to take things for granted. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we all make is taking our financial future for granted, whether that's tomorrow or 40 years from now. So what are some of the steps you discuss in the book that people can take to avoid taking their financial future for granted? You know, I meet people all the time and I meet people that are mature, like grown adults in their 40s and 50s that feel like they should already know all this stuff. Well, unless you've made it a priority to learn about it, there's no way you're just going to absorb it. Unless you've read books or studied or been taught, there's no way that you're supposed to know it. And so this is designed to be a kind of a practical guide to figuring out your financial future and designed specifically for people that are becoming financially aware for the first time. And so, you know, what my hope would be is to catch that person that is a millennial or Gen Z or maybe somewhere else along the life cycle and catch them and empower them to know all that stuff before they get to be late 40s, early 50s or close to retirement. Yeah, that's super important. And certainly, you know, there are so many mistakes that we could avoid just by gathering knowledge. And there's a lot of that out there to be had, especially with your book. And the statement, math always wins, is threaded throughout your book. And this really resonates with me because I always say, do the math, live the life when it comes to budgeting. And It's a really important statement. Math always wins. Tell me why you felt it important to thread it throughout your book. Well, I mean, it is important and I love math and I love helping people. So this is a perfect career for me. But the reason I love math is because there are solutions. It's objective. It's not like literature or art or whatever. There is an answer. And so very early on in the book, we talk about don't spend more than you make. Well, that just is common sense, but you would be surprised at how many people just disregard that 
and we'll just keep spending. And credit cards are the means that generally allow people to spend more than they make and they get into trouble. And so it is important and just stay focused on the math. The other thing is how compound interest works is it's a mathematical, I don't know, bonanza. I don't know of a better word. It's just crazy how your money can double if you're earning you know, high enough interest and how that compounding really will put a younger person into scoring position later in life. Yeah, I got to tell you, I love that the math always wins. And I'm, I'm really focused on that because, you know, there's so much emotion that people put into money. And math is not about emotion, right? It's about fact. And so if you do the math in any financial situation, the results are the results, like you're saying, and math doesn't lie. And it's not about commending or condemning anyone. It's just that the facts are there. The math will show you, you know, you can say whether it's good or bad, but the math is going to show you the reality of any situation. And like you were saying with compounding interest, that's why math now, and when I was a kid and in school, it was very boring to me like it is for most people. But now I think it's very exciting because it can show you so many great things that you can have in life if you use the math, right? Right. And just like the who wants a ride home thing, I often use that with my kids. This is a math story problem. So this is a real live math story problem, just like in your math book, but it's real. Let's figure it out together and make it more interesting. And and that way they can apply what it is that they're learning in, in math in school to real life situations. And so that's another one where it's a real life math story problem. And with a real life math story problem, there are solutions, right? So let's get to the solution. And the other message that I would like to get out there is that regardless of what your income level is or where you stand, you can use time and math to your advantage and be in scoring position, you know, when you get to retirement age. So you don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or some other professional in order to live a life of meaning and be comfortable at retirement. Definitely. You know, we hear so many stories now. I mean, more and more we're hearing it, which is a great thing that teachers and plumbers and people like that oftentimes have a lot more at retirement than maybe doctors or lawyers will, whatever. It just depends on what they've done with their money throughout their lives, right? I mean, how much you have today has nothing to do with how much you're going to have tomorrow, certainly. Right. The other thing is that a doctor or a lawyer has a lifestyle that they need to present to the society which is going to cause them to go into debt that a plumber or a teacher does not have, right? So they're not out to impress anybody by joining the right country club, taking the right vacations, having the right car. And so in many ways, you know, the outward appearance of that doctor or lawyer looks really nice. But when you take a look at their finances and we have, they're often lacking and they're hugely into debt. And so that's where we really don't want to compare ourselves with other people. Let's focus on what it is that we can do and focus on that. Yeah, and let's start where we're at, because one of the biggest mistakes that young people make with their finances is trying to recreate the lifestyle that their parents have, but they're coming right out of college and their parents have, you know, 20, 30 years on them. So let's talk about why it's a mistake to try to recreate the lifestyle that you see your parents having. Well, the lifestyle that your parents have now, they worked hard to get. 
right? So when I left home and went to college, my parents had a really spectacular lifestyle. But when they were first married, they didn't have any furniture. They made a cardboard box, literally their dining table, and they put a piece of wood on it. And then they saved up and they had chairs. So you're seeing the finished product, but you don't know the sacrifice that went into getting to that point. And so when you're just getting started, give yourself a break and start with something that's reasonable. I'd rather have you live in a place that, you know, you may have to suffer for a little while because it's too cramped or whatever and save some money up and get a down payment than try to move right into where you think you ought to live right out of the gate. Yeah, because a lot of times that can lead to much longer lasting pain than you would have had to have. You can have very short term, quote, pain, if you will, in a financial sense, you know, if you're working towards uh, longer lasting freedom, shall we say. Yeah, and I'll just tell you a real quick story. This is a real life story of a real person that she got out of professional school. She had a lot of debt and she went in with four other girls and was renting a house and she took the smallest room. The rent was the least expensive. It was literally a closet. She had to climb into her bed from the foot of the bed to go to sleep. Did that for four years, paid off all her debt. And in the six years, she has six figures in her 401k. Wow. And I, I want to cry. It's such a beautiful story that you just made those sacrifices, put yourself in scoring position. And now, you know, you've got this to show for it. Yeah, that's such a great thing. You just wish all of us could see that rainbow when we're starting out. And a lot of us miss that, unfortunately. But, you know, I mean, it starts with knowledge, but it also starts with a solid financial foundation, right? And an emergency fund is so important in that because no matter what you go through in life, we all know that life is going to throw you things that you're not prepared to deal with. But an emergency fund can kind of be your catch all for fighting back against those unexpected things, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We know something's going to happen. So you talk about in your book, the importance of an emergency fund. And of course, anybody who's read about personal finance has probably heard about that. But what I liked was that in addition to the unexpected expenses that we know are going to be out there and that we hope people plan for, you also talk about the unexpected opportunities which is a whole different mindset. So tell me why you include the unexpected opportunities as a use for the emergency fund. Well, I mean, this is something that I've developed over the years with wisdom and studying human behavior and having money set aside just when bad things happen is kind of disappointing, right? So I like to give people permission to use what it is that you've saved to keep you safe to take advantage of opportunities. So for example, you're a young person and all your girlfriends are heading out of town for the weekend and you wanna be able to go, instead of putting on a credit card, use this emergency fund. And then as soon as you get back that next Monday, you start building that thing back up. Or there is, you wanna get new skis or you wanna get a stand-up paddleboard or whatever it is, tap into the emergency fund with the understanding that you have to build that right back up to where the target is. That way it becomes something that is empowering and not just for negative things. It helps to create satisfaction in life and you feel good about the discipline that it took to build that up. 
I think that's a great idea, and it's something that would motivate a lot of people towards building that fund when, like you said, they may not, you know, for the negative part. Because a lot of us, I mean, I know I used to play this game in my head that eh, nothing's going to happen, it'll be fine, so I'll just use my money for something else. And then, of course, you know, when something happens, you're like, oh, the world hates me and I can't do anything about it. You know, right. it's a vicious cycle. But I know that for me, it would be easy to go overboard on the unexpected opportunities portion. So how do we maintain a balance between the emergency for the things that are unexpected that we can't handle that may be negative and the opportunities that we want to have? Should we have two separate savings categories for these or how do we maintain a balance? Well, you really... In order to do this and in order to have permission to use it for opportunities, you have to have demonstrated maturity and discipline, right? And so if, if we have a target that whatever that emergency fund is, it should be three to six months of your living expenses in that range. And let's just say it's $8,000. That's what you need to have. And you spend 2000 for an opportunity. Well, then you have to really discipline yourself to build that back up to 8000 and put that money away before you can use it again. And so you have to have kind of a mindset of, this is my target, this is where I need to be, and until I get to that point, I can't do other things. Right. And I think that discipline thing is very important because there are a lot of tools and a lot of mindsets out there for people to use. And, you know, everybody has a different idea about what is a good tool and what is a bad tool when it comes to money. But when you think about it, they are all just tools. They're like inanimate objects, right? So it's not so much about the tool as the way you use it. And I think that definitely goes to your point about discipline. Yeah. So as we're talking about savings, we've talked about emergency savings and saving for opportunities that might come out out of the blue. But there's also, you know, other things that we know are going to happen for savings. And I know for me, when I was younger, I'm like so many others put off saving for retirement because I thought, well, it's so far away. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm young. I've got all this time. And of course, time creeps up on you and it's way better to start as early as you possibly can. But what I missed was that there's more to saving than just retirement. So you talk in your book, and I I love how you broke this down about the different purposes for savings, and they're in the short, medium, and long term. So how do we save for these different things? Because I'm a a big believer in categorizing spending within a budget, and it sounds like we need to be categorizing our savings for different purposes. So what do you think, and tell me about some of the things that might be short, medium, and long-term savings goals? So a short-term goal could be you're driving the same beater that got you through high school and college and you want to get a new car and because you read my book, you know, you're not going to lease it and you're going to buy a good quality used car. So you're putting money away for the next couple of years. So you have a healthy down payment and a very low car payment if you do have to have one. And so that would be a short-term goal. And so we would use a short-term solution for that. You can invest in the stock market and roll the dice and hope that things work out if you're going to need that money in the next year or two. 
A medium term goal might be, you know, you're saving for a down payment on a house. You're tired of spending money on rent, making the landlord rich, and you want to get a down payment. Well, you're not going to do that overnight. And so that may take, you know, three, four, five years. And that's where you would look at maybe some intermediate type investments that could be relatively safe and get you some growth. And then obviously long term would be retirement. And it's crazy to be a young person and think about retirement because you're never going to be old. (laughs) But take it from this old guy. It happens and it happens a lot quicker than you think. I reference in the book that there was a study done that when people used an app that ages them, whether it's on Snapchat or some other app, they are more likely to make contributions (laughs) for retirement than if they didn't see an image of themselves as an older person. (laughs) So long-term would be retirement primarily. Yeah, I I love that. In your book where you talked about that, and I thought, wow, that's so crazy. You know, maybe we should all put something like that on our website. Just (laughs) here, find out what you're going to look like. Now go save. (laughs) It's amazing how things like that can really um, impact our mindset. I also say in the book, tongue in cheek, that it was not favorable to me, but because (laughs) you, dear reader, are such an attractive person, it's going to make you look amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, talking about waiting and when you start saving and everything, you really illustrate the cost of procrastination in your book. Is there an easy way to sum it up with a visual? Because this is the most important piece of finances, I think, is just the cost of procrastination in saving for anything. Yeah. I give an example of two people, Gloria and Jared, in the book. And one of them saves, I think it was from 22 to 32, $5,000 a year, just does it for 10 years and then, and then stops. And the other one says, you know what, I'm, an, I'm young, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to go do the things I want to do, I'm going to travel. But once I get to be old, like 33, that's when I'll start. <laughs> and that person puts money away, $5,000 a year till age 65. The person that started and only did it 10 years ends up at 65 with a considerably larger amount than the person that put considerably more away. And so it really illustrates how that compound interest works and why it's important to start earlier. So if you're just listening to this and you find yourself at 32, oh shoot, I missed it. No, you can still make up and you can increase your contributions. But if you're young, just do something, start with something. And my goal would be, you know, have a target of at least 15% of what it is that you're making that's going away into some type of savings or investment. The math always wins, right? Math wins. (laughs) And I think that if kids could start when they're still living with their parents. I mean, imagine a world where we had kids that, you know, when you get your first job, I got my first job at 14. So uh, I'm just going to go with when you get your first job at 16, because, you know, then you can get a work permit and work a regular job or whatever. But if you could be putting that money aside for just your starting out expenses when you're still living with mom and dad, that could just go so far. Imagine a world where you don't finance your first car, you pay it with cash. You know, you have your down payment for your first apartment. You have enough money for an emergency savings fund when you have your first job. I mean, how great would that be? It'd be awesome. And I I also started at 14 and, you know, paid cash for my first car. It was a used car and also helped pay for my college. And, you know, when I'm 
on a Saturday night, and I wasn't a complete nerd, but on a Saturday night when I'm in the library studying, it's because I had skin in the game and I was paying for that. Yeah. And there were a lot of friends whose parents were paying for it that weren't taking it as hard. So when I'm spending my money, I'm going to feel like I get my money's worth out of it. Definitely. That's an important thing, I think, because even if parents have the money to pay for everything for their kids, this is a reason why sometimes it's a consideration to have their kids have skin in the game because it really does make a big difference to their mindset. It does to me, and it also speaks to kind of the entitlement mentality of, well, somebody will pick up the check. Well, no, that somebody is you, and at some point, you're going to need to be able to do it. And so the earlier that you can start doing that for yourself, the better off you're going to be long term. Yeah, that's reality. So I I agree. The sooner that they learn that, the better it's going to be for them, because otherwise they're going to have a rude awakening that's it's harder to deal with the the older you get. And the consequences are bigger the older you get. Definitely. So one of the big mistakes that people make (laughs) that we've all probably made is only paying the minimum on debt. Because if you get a bill and it says, oh, well, you owe, you know, however many hundreds of dollars, but you can just give us 35 this month. That's fine. Why is it a bad idea to do that? Well, I have very harsh words about (laughs) credit cards and credit card (laughs) companies. I say they're the devil and it's tongue in cheek, but not really. They're trying to get you addicted to something that is not going to help you in any way, and that's credit, and it will bury you quicker than anything else. And so, and we did this as younger people. We spent money, we went on trips, it went on a credit card, and we paid the minimum payment. I'm like, well, how come we're not making any progress? And that's going back to the math always wins. So that minimum payment is designed to string you along forever meaning you will never pay that off if you just pay the minimum payment. And so that's where maybe a financial calculator or an app on your phone or something, you can look at how long will it take you to pay that off. If you do it, you will freak out. And so then you look at, well, how much more can I pay in order to get this down? Perfect example of this was helping a a friend who had student loan debt and was just overwhelmed by it. And when we did the math on making the payments that the student loan company set up, she would be well into her 50s before that was paid off. Like, how would you feel about that? Well, I wouldn't like that. All right, well, let's do something about it. And we did, we put her on a payment plan. She accelerated those payments. And two months from now, she will be debt-free and she is 28 years old. Wow, what a great story. Right, and now empowered, right? And now nobody owns me. And I don't owe anybody anything. And now I can do what I want to do. That's such a great story. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's what it's all about. Because the less in debt that you are to other people, the more choices you have about how you spend your time and certainly how you spend your money. And that's such a great thing. Because again, money is just an intangible. I mean, it's it's an object, okay? It's something that you can hold in your hand. But the money itself means nothing. It's what you do with it. And the things that you want, that's why you're working to get the money, right? So let's go down that road because you were talking about the student loan scenario. And in your book, you refer to student loans as, quote, a zombie apocalypse that will grow larger and angrier the less attention you pay to it. And I have never heard it put better. So you've got to tell me why you see it this way. So unfortunately, most people are coming out with a lot of student loan. And and I think it's the average is close to 30,000 or or thereabouts. And it is 
untenable when you're young and you're just starting out and you're just trying to get your feet wet and you're trying to create a lifestyle that you can be comfortable with and you have this thing hanging over you. And unfortunately, many people just ignore it or say, you know what, it's just part of my life. And I've known people that have had to pay student loans until they're in their 50s. And so it's just part of it. Instead of looking at it as the enemy and how can I attack that and how can I get it paid down? And the other thing that I would say is that, and this is also very controversial, I think that the government is using our students as a revenue center and I think that's shameful. So interest rates that the government charges are exorbitant and should be illegal. So you could be paying six and a half, seven, even seven and a half percent right now on a government loan, yet the 10-year treasury is yielding 0.7%. Those things don't add up. And I don't think our young people should be revenue centers. We should be doing whatever we can to help them short of you know paying off their student loan because yeah. they accumulated it. They need to pay it up. But find creative ways to allow them to get out from under that. I completely agree. And, you know, no lender in their right mind would lend an 18-year-old all of this money to, I mean, you know, if they were trying to buy a home or something like that, they couldn't right. get that money. How is it possible that, I know this angers me too, I just don't understand how these sources can lend all this money to these kids. And certainly most of them don't understand what they're signing when they do it. And it's a real crying shame. But yeah, once you've signed on the dotted line, it is your responsibility. You do need to pay it back. But definitely focus on the ways that you can do that soon rather than later because it is. It's going to hang over your head for life. I know people who are in retirement whose Social Security checks are being garnished because they never took care of these student loans. And now they're so exorbitant, they will never pay them off in their lifetime. And it's completely sad. And, you know, it is avoidable. I mean, there are ways that we can get kids to go to school debt-free. Is that true? It's very true. But the other thing is, and this is because my son will be a junior this fall, in a large university. But in his freshman year, I got an email and I can't remember which federal agency, but I was carbon copied on it. It was to him. Click on this link to get your student loan. Well, we never applied for it. We saved money. And so I called him or texted him. I can't remember. You didn't click that, did you? No, I'm not that stupid. But what if you did? Or what if your child is at school and gets this and thinks, oh, you know what? This could be a solution. And it's $6,000. And that would really go a long way. They make it so easy Mm -hmm. to get the money. And I worked with some high school seniors in our local area, just educating them. What what is it that you want to do? All right. I want to be a physical therapist. Okay. Well, here's kind of the starting range of what salaries would be for a physical therapist. And you could support debt of X amount with that. And they're like, oh, oh, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Looking into that, again, it's the math. Find out what it is that you want to do and then what kind of income that would support and how much debt can you take out. So having $100,000 of debt for you know, environmental science degree may not be a good exchange. And I'm not saying that that's a bad degree. I'm just saying that's a lot of debt for that kind of a degree. 
You know, that's one thing in our country. We kind of tend to do things backwards when it comes to money. Let's go into debt now and then we'll figure it out later. And we do that without realizing the consequences. And like you said, if you just take a look at what you're signing up for versus what you're going to get out of it, that could change your mind right now. And, you know, if you don't think about that, you could be in for a world of hurt on the other side. Or maybe college isn't what you should be doing, right? If If you can't see yourself in a cubicle crunching numbers because you love the outdoors or you love mechanical things, well, maybe maybe just because your friends are going doesn't mean that you should be going. And maybe the trades are someplace. And I wish there wasn't quite the stigma that there is on the trades or the service. It's a great solution for a lot of people. And I'd rather see that than somebody come out wandering through, you know, university, hoping to find their passion and not doing that and being $50,000 in debt and still no further ahead. Yeah, there's so much that needs to go into the thought process on that. And certainly, I hope that your book and other resources that are out there will really help people that are thinking about college and thinking about their next step, especially in the environment that we're in today, right? Because no matter how you plan, no matter what kind of education you have, there could be huge bumps in the road. And so if you don't plan for those bumps, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And if you, the more information you have, the better off you're going to to be in making your decisions because knowledge is power. And the more you have, the better off you're going to be. So let's talk about that for a minute, because you write in your book that planning for the bumps in the road is just as important as planning for the perfect life. And this is such a great point. We've talked about planning for the bumps in the road through emergency funds and things like that. But the emergency fund is the end result. And what I loved in your book was you talked about finding your bag. And that could go a long way to a lot of different things because it's about planning. So explain what you mean by finding your bag. Bag is big, audacious goal. That's the politically correct um, (laughs) (laughs) meaning of that. And your big, audacious goal is something that should make your knees quiver just a little bit and make you nervous about telling even your best friend what it is that you want to do. But the older I get and the more wisdom I attain, the more I realize this is it. You get one shot at this, yeah. right? And it's it's up to you what you do with your life. And so having some kind of a big audacious goal that can really drive you and motivate you and excite you, make you happy to get up in the morning, is super important. Most people, sadly, go through life trying to get to retirement as safely as possible. And I think life is just too valuable, too precious to take that kind of approach. So be proactive. Think of something that really excites you. And the example that I use is astronaut Jerry Leninger, who spoke at my son's graduation. You know, they weren't from an affluent family. They didn't have money. And yet he said, I want to go and be an astronaut. And his dad, God bless him, said, son, if you work hard enough and if that's what you want to do, then you're going to go do that. And that's what he did. And he worked harder than so many other people and became a triathlete, a surgeon, an astronaut and a pilot. So that was something that really resonated with me. It resonated with my son and many of the high school graduating class. So I thought, let's put that in there and encourage people to set up a big audacious goal. And then once you do set that up, 
and I talk about setting goals in here, there's a lot of psychology to it. It's important that you lead with that and you tell people that this is what you want to do, not so they can ridicule you, but so they can hold you accountable they can support you they can challenge you. And um, you don't have to stick with that. You may change your big audacious goal later on if you realize that it's just not the right thing for me. But having other people help you be accountable to it is important. The book that I wrote, it was one of those. It's not a big audacious goal, but most people don't write a book. But I went and told my clients, I told my friends, I told my spouse, and now I'm on the hook. Now I got to produce, right? Now I have to discipline myself, get up at 4.30 in the morning and start writing, which is what I did. And so that's kind of my pep talk. And I would love if that could encourage somebody. You also talk about why this goal, your big audacious goal, it says in your book, quote, a properly set goal that inspires peak motivation should give you a 50% probability of hitting it. And I think this is important because so many times people have goals and they may be big audacious goals, but when they fail or when they get discouraged, they throw them away thinking they were stupid to go that far. So why would we set a goal that only has a 50% percent chance of success. That's what we would call a stretch goal. And so if you set a goal that I'm going to lose two pounds, me, between now and Christmas, that's not going to stretch me and it's not going to change my dietary or activity level at all. And so I hope to do it by the time I get to the end of the year. But, you know, I put on some COVID pounds, probably like a lot <laughs> right. of us. But to make that a, a stretch goal where I need to be by the end of the year, that's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of work and a lot of discipline. And let's say I don't make it and I'm on the 50 percent that didn't make it. Well, I'm in a much better position than I would have been if I had set an easy goal. And so setting an easy goal is not going to motivate you in any way. Setting one that is going to be a challenge is going to motivate you. And even if you fall short, you're going to be so much farther ahead than you would have otherwise been. And so then the next year, you set another goal with a 50% probability of hitting and then it stretches you even higher than where you were before. And so that's why it's important to set reasonable goals that will push you and challenge you. That's an excellent mindset. And what I hope that everybody gets out of that, because what I got out of it was that if you set a big audacious goal and you don't achieve the top of your goal, but you achieve, let's say, 50% of that goal, that is still a success. Don't give up and don't think that you're a failure. Look at the positive that has come out of it. You are still a success. You may not have gone as far as you wanted to go, but you went a heck of a lot farther than you had been already. I agree. And another saying that I give to my kids all the time is when it comes to your life, look at both the direction and the velocity. First of all, are you heading in the right direction? And secondly, are you going at the speed at which you should be going? And so ideally, we get both of those optimized. We're heading in the right direction and we're doing it at a reasonable clip. But if you're not, if you're heading in the wrong direction, you don't want to go be going fast. You want to first turn it around and then start slow and then pick it up. And that's kind of the same thing for the goals. First, make sure you're heading in the right direction. And then even if it's a slow pace, you're going to get it done and you're going to meet those goals. 
That makes so much sense. And it really goes to a mindset of seeing your life as a journey and not a destination. It's very important to have that progress all the way through life and keep checking yourself to make sure you're going, like you said, in the direction you want to go. Very important. But at the same time, there has to be a balance. So you can't live for tomorrow. Like, I'm going to just do everything I could so I could retire early. That fire movement, I think it could be potentially dangerous. And retiring early, for example, you need to be able to enjoy your life along the way and can't just put everything off until tomorrow. You have to be able to enjoy today. And that's been a challenge for me. As a planner, I'm always thinking about tomorrow. Well, it's important that we take trips. We spend time with family. We do things that bring meaning to our life today. And that's why, you know, I changed my philosophy on that emergency fund to also use it for opportunities. That's very important, the balance in life. I think that's something that a lot of us miss. And you're right, that is extremely important. So I'm so glad that you wrote this book because it really has that. And it's geared towards kids who are just starting out or maybe not even starting out yet, but thinking about starting out. But it's got nuggets for everybody at every age group as well. And it's a lot of balance. So there's 101 reasons to read your book. I love the book. It's called Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. And Brian, where can people go to get the book and learn more about you? So Bobby, first, thank you very much for the kind words. They would go to the book's website is just myname.com. So it's B-R-I-A-N-U-R-S-U.com. And on there, you would have other podcasts. This one hopefully will be on there a budget worksheet that you can download. You can download for free the first four chapters. And if you like the tone of those first four chapters, then get the book. If you don't like the tone, keep it to yourself because I got very thin skin and I'll cry (laughs) myself to sleep. But I think you'll like it. It was written to be very approachable, not academic, and one that would empower people to take action. You know what I thought was great about your book? Not only all the information that you provided, obviously, but the way that you did it, I sat and laughed, you know, during a lot of it. And it was almost like, even though you weren't here, it was almost like just going out and having coffee with a friend and having them tell you about their experiences. I thought it was very well written and very fun to read. Well, thank you. And and friends that know me that have read it said, I can't read this without having your voice in my head, <laughs> kind of like a Morgan Freeman thing. Right. So I did write it and I have to give credit to my editor to help keep my voice active and live in there. And your website is intentionaladvice.com, right? Your company is Intentional Wealth Advisors? Correct. As a profession, yes. I thought that's a great name because being intentional about your money is certainly the most important thing. So Intentional Wealth Advisors is a great name and your website is intentionaladvice.com. Brian, thank you so much for all your time today sharing this book and being our guest on Sensible Chat. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate it. I had a great time. A huge sensible thank you to our guest professor, Brian Ursu, author of Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. Get the book and learn more about him at brianursu.com. There are so many questions I didn't get to ask Brian. Never enough time. But his book is chock full of great ideas. And remember, the first four chapters are free. Go to brianursu.com to get them. You can also find a link under the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. Wherever you are in life, you've probably been overwhelmed when it comes to money. That feeling of wanting to give up 
because you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And what's the point? I had this conversation with someone the other day. Her question was, how do you break out of the paycheck to paycheck cycle when you can barely make ends meet? Here's exactly what I told her. Don't look at the big picture. Start small and pat yourself on the back for even the tiniest of wins. Start with a quarter. If you can save a quarter, do it and focus on the fact that you're a tiny bit closer than you were before. Start by getting one month ahead in your smallest bill, even if it's Netflix, which is about 15 bucks. Small wins will get you there. I know it's frustrating. On my journey to being debt-free, there were many days I felt like it was one step forward, two steps back. But I kept following my plan, and eventually, it became one step forward, one step back. Then finally, one step forward, no steps back, and the progress began to build. Time is going to pass anyway, so make it count. Don't give up. You may think a quarter isn't enough to make a difference, but remember, there is power in numbers. It starts with one quarter, then two, then three, and they will add up. Plus, once you get in the habit of saving or directing your money in a certain way with a specific plan, you'll be surprised how many other quarters you'll find to add to that goal. So put a budget in place. This is going to help you not only find those quarters, but put them in the right place so they don't get used for something else. The budget is your plan, your process. Put the plan in place and trust the process. Have you seen Mount Everest? Can you imagine climbing all the way to the top? How did anyone ever get there? One small step at a time. Trust the process and don't give up. If you need help getting started or want someone to walk you through the budgeting process step by step, reach out to me. I'm happy to help. Remember, budgeting is not hard. It's just math. Changing a mindset is what trips most people up. But if you're ready to take control of your financial life, you might find it a bit easier to change your mindset and live a less stressful financial life. So until next time, remember, do the math, live the life. That does it for this episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. Links for all the resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. While you're there, find your favorite app to be sure and never miss a show. On social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to Sensible Bobby through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. Thank you.